Welcome everyone to the gaming couch. Be it video games, card games, or board games, we'll have a good time playing. So come and join me on the couch. This is your host, Smart Boy. So last week we talked about game series and the universe that they're able to develop. Now, one thing that a series kind of has going for with its universe is there's so much that they can work with when creating this series. You know, you have other media like card games, movies, books, the video game. There's so much that they can work with to invest someone in what they're creating. So on the other hand, let's look at standalone games. These games that are just one-offs on their own that have created a world for this one game. They open and they close all in one. They have an additional challenge that these series don't face. The fact that they have to invest you and engage you in just one sitting. There's no coming back to revisit the series unless they lock out. It's a very popular thing. They decide to make a sequel, which sometimes happens. But I want to focus on those games that don't have a sequel. It's just a one-off, a one-shot game. So with these games, sometimes you'll see like little pieces of media around it. Maybe like if you pre-order it, you get a little bonus artwork, stuff like that. But, you know, there's nothing substantial that really expands it. Like, it's not a full-length novel or movie or anything like that that develops the game further. It's just the game that engages you with the story, and that is it. So some companies have made standalone games over time, multiple ones, so they might have some experience with game development, but they still face this problem of, since we're making this one game and it's not like our other games... Story-wise, how are we going to make this work? The mechanics might be the same, but the story is still unique. So I want to focus on three games today. And these three games are all personal favorites of mine. I've played them multiple times. And they're fairly recent. So the first one I'm looking at is Child of Light, released in April 2014. We also have Hellblade Senua Sacrifice, which was August 2017. And then Fury, released in July 2016. Now, since I am talking about the story of these games and how they're immersive, there may be some minor spoilers. Now, I'm only going to use like the main character's name, and I'm going to reference part of the ga- parts of the game, but I'm not going to like call out at certain areas, like say, hey, at the end of the game. I want to keep this as spoiler-free as possible and avoid major plot points, but I still want to put it out there that I am discussing bits of this game. So if you're still slightly concerned about maybe something being spoiled, I do recommend... Stopping for now, check out these games on your own, and if you want to play them, definitely do it, and then come back and have a listen. So with that, let's get into this. So the first game, Child of Light, is an amazing little side-scrolling kind of platformer RPG. Now what's cool about this game is you are controlling the character Aurora, who's a little princess, a little girl, who wakes up in this kind of bizarre other world. And she's looking just get back home. And that's all the story is for the most part. And what makes this game so enjoyable in the way of immersing you in the world are the three main things. The artwork, the music, and the dialogue. So first off, the artwork. It's like a coloring book. The way it's designed, it just looks like it's hand-drawn. It looks amazing. The colors really kind of pop out. Almost like a painting. I said a coloring book, but also a painting, like almost like watercolors. You can go either way with it because the dialogue itself when the characters are talking, it kind of looks like sketches and mark and colors and everything like that with crayon. 
But then when you're walking on the world, it's a little more artistic with like watercolors and paints and things like that. It just looks beautiful and natural. And when Aurora, the main character, is walking, she has very long hair and is drifting behind her. And sometimes you can see like the individual strands of her hair is kind of like parting in the wind as she moves. And then in combat, when she's fighting, her hair actually will move with her as she like she lunges forward and everything. You see her body move, including her hair. It's in its gorgeous and then the world itself when you're walking around you start out in a forest and now the trees are very tall and you know this because at first when you're walking around the way they shade it the main character is shaded you know just a little darker than what she usually looks like the trees in the foreground in front of her are very dark and discolored you can't see them that well and she actually will walk behind them when she's moving but then there's sections in the forest where there's a clearing and then you can see out in the distance you actually can see the trees and how tall and massive they are and sunlight's beaming down on them and you really get this feel of like there's this massive forest that i just woke up in and i'm trying to find my way out and as you're going through this forest and other areas of the world the music's very peaceful and soothing and relaxing and then it changes parts of the game. It's a very sad game at certain areas. There's many moments that you feel something, and the music's almost absent in those moments. It's very quiet, and you're just uneasy. And then we jump into combat. It, you know, it picks up. It's combat music, and then the bosses themselves almost have like orchestra pieces behind them. And it's amazing. It really makes you feel like you're encountering this great beast as this little girl with her companions. Now, speaking of the companions, getting into the dialogue... This was a huge selling point for me with the game and really just got me into the story. Everything is done in rhymes. When the characters are talking, they rhyme. When the narrator is giving you backstory, she rhymes. Everything is a rhyme in this game. But it doesn't take away from everything. It adds to the experience. So when you're playing this game with the artwork, it almost feels like a fairy tale. And the way the game opens, it opens with a narration as if you're reading a fairy tale tale from a book to a young child and with the rhymes throughout the story it kind of keeps that feeling going and not only that because aurora is a young girl who thinks she's in a dream and she's just trying to get back home she kind of has this fairy tale feeling about it where she's like oh i am this you know this is my dream so i can't lose so of course i'll fight these beasts in front of me like it makes you feel like this girl is just living a fairy tale and you almost want to keep playing the game to see how the fairy tale ends. And then the way it does end, the ending is amazing. And the story develops naturally throughout the game that you never feel like you're cheated out of anything in this story. Like you're actually playing through this story and kind of collecting everything as it goes forward with these little fun rhymes and with these kind of corny, fantastic characters that join you and everything. And then, of course, being a game, there in an RPG, there is turn-based combat. But it's very simple. It's not too challenging. It's turn-based combat. You attack the opponent, they attack you, and that's really it. There is this pretty cool mechanic where you're able to control the battle a little bit, where outside of your normal attack, you can hover this little curse over your characters and heal them, and that takes some energy. You can also use that same energy to slow down your opponent so it takes longer for them to get their attack off. So the player stays engaged in combat, but that's really it, because it wants you to be in the story. It wants you to be going through this narrative and having fun with the characters designed, which is amazing. Like, you never want a game to be challenging in the sense that it takes away from the story in front of you. You want the, the gameplay to be challenging enough that the player stays engaged with it and will enjoy it, but will still make progress throughout the story to really see what's happening. And Child of Light finds that nice balance where gameplay isn't too challenging 
so that you can continue regardless of your skill level with RPGs so you can see the story. Because that's what the game's all about. It's about this little fairy tale and this young girl. You know, there are some games that follow suit similar that try and tell a fantastic story but have difficult gameplay. And then you can have you can set the difficulty to make it easier for the player if you so choose just to experience a story. I know Deuce X has done that in the past. Mass Effect has also done that where they say, hey, you want to experience a story? Here's an easier game, you know, game difficulty to just make you have fun with the story. And there's nothing wrong with that. But those games, again, they're more like series. And also, I just want to focus on these kind of smaller games and what they've done uniquely for their experience. Now, speaking of uniqueness, we get into Hellblade Senua's Sacrifice. That is on a completely different spectrum from Child of Light. So where Child of Light is very bright and fantastic and fun and enjoyable, Hellblade is dark and dreary and almost depressing at times. It's a totally different approach getting someone invested in the story so first i wanted to talk about the genre in a quick search online they tagged the game as an action adventure game yes there is some action into it and i agree with that but i wouldn't say it's adventure i'd say it's more of an atmospheric style game it it's more of an experience going through this than more of a game it it can be painful seeing what's happening the suffering it's almost harrowing at certain points through this game that you're experiencing with the main character, Senua. And this is what they did to make it that invested and that engaging in a negative way for the player almost, like almost like a toll. They wanted, when developing this game, Ninja Theory, what they were looking to do is find a way to have players understand what it's like for someone to go through and experience psychosis and schizophrenia and it was interesting what they did now as far as i know no one ninja theory has experiences any of that i myself personally do not experience any form of psychosis or anything like that so what they did is they actually partnered up with various professionals and other people who are, know of psychosis to build the game around the research and around those experiences so again like i said i don't experience it personally so I can't say if what they developed in the game is fully accurate or not, but it's definitely something different than what you get in other games. So the story, very straightforward. Again, a very simple premise. You control Senua, who's like a Celtic Viking warrior, who goes into hell to rescue her dead lover. And that's it. That's all the story is. So what they decided to do to bring in that whole thing of psychosis and schizophrenia, they made the game very personal. So when you're traveling through this world, and now when you think hell, sometimes you think of fire, brimstone, and horrible things, but actually it's not that, it's not as extreme as that. In fact, one of the first areas of the game, you're along this beach, and it's very kind of calm and peaceful. It's nice and relaxing. And the camera's the third person. It's just over Senua's shoulder. So you're kind of right there with her. It's not first person. You still see Senua and everything, but you're right next to her. And also what they decide to do, there's no hood. There's no heads-up display or anything. There's no health bar. There's nothing else. You just see the world and her. So essentially, you see the world through her eyes. Because we all know in real life, we just see the world. There's no, like, you know, it's like The Sims. We don't have a little food meter in the corner, so we know when we're hungry and everything like that. You know, we just know what our body tells us, essentially. And so in the game Hellblade, you just know and see what Senua knows and sees. That's, that's it. You have nothing else going for you. So it feels very personal 
in that way, since you're right there with her. Now, from there, what they decide to do is with combat, similar to Child of Light, it's simple combat. Okay, it's very straightforward. Since you don't have the heads-up display, you're just worried about using your sword, stab the bad guys. That's it. You have a set of moves you get in the beginning, and then throughout the game, you get a, like one additional I'll call it like ability that you get to use in combat, but that's it. It's just what you have at the beginning is what you have to use. And since the enemies change throughout the game, you're now adapting what you're doing to them. And the other thing is, without the heads-up display... Since you're playing as Senua, you have to take cues from the enemy. Since you don't know what their like health is, and so health bar, you have to take those visual cues. As enemies get weaker, they start to kind of slouch over. They hold on to their side or they grab their arm. They start to more limp towards you. Their attacks are a little slower, kind of more desperate. They're trying to just hit harder in one big swing and leave themselves open, and they're not as agile. They're not dodging your attacks. They're not concerned about that. They're just worried about like near the end, just hit this girl and try and get rid of her. And you have to work with that. So when multiple enemies come at you and you start to hammer on one guy and he starts to see like he's a little weak, you have to think to yourself, okay, this guy's starting to slouch over. He's a little slower. Should I just finish him off now or should I back up and now worry about these two other guys off to my side who are feeling totally fine and being very aggressive with me? You're thinking like her. You have to be a warrior like her because there's nothing else going on. It's just, I got my sword. And that's it. And I have to take in what the enemies give me to determine what's the best course of action to take. And the last thing that Hellblade does to really drive home this this story, this world, and get you involved in it, and it's going to take me a while to get through this, is the voices. So when trying to make a game to show people what it's like to go through and suffer psychosis, they made these voices in-game. And now, first off, I have to say, if you play the game, play it with a headset. You need to use a headset. And this is why. What they did is they had a recording studio, and they had one microphone in the center of the studio, and I watched the video of it, and they had voice actors kind of walking around the microphone saying various things from in various distances from the mic, different angles and stuff like that. And they record all that, so it's like this 360 microphone fancy thing, right? And so when they made the game and they imported the audio of the recordings and everything like that, when you're using a headset, what happens is you'll be playing the game. And then you might hear a slight whisper over your right shoulder of something. Or a voice might start shouting in your left ear. It changes. You can, you actually feel like these voices are actually right there beside you talking over your shoulder whispering things to you and everything like that it, it's right there it's very personal so it's either like you feel almost like a physical presence over your shoulder because of these different angles of voices are coming in or it feels like it's something in your head coming from all sorts of different ways and then what they do they were they were really, they did really well with this the language is very important so for example when you're in combat and Senua gets hit hard, and she gets knocked down to the ground, and she's almost about to die, and she's trying to get back up. You'll hear voices. Some of them will say, like, whispering, oh, well, she can't do it, or others will be, like, shouting, get up, get up, she has to get up, like, panicking, stuff like that. And it's, they, keep, they keep saying she. It's like they are talking like Senua isn't there. It's almost as if they're involving you in the conversation, saying, hey, player, she, she has to keep going. Like, she needs to get up, get her up. And then on the other hand, there's this other voice that starts to appear 
partway through the game and comes up every now and then, this very deep, almost demonic type voice. And he talks directly to Senua. He uses the word you a lot. You know, you brought the suffering upon your people. You're the reason why they died, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he uses that you a lot, really putting into Senua, it's her fault. And then in turn, she's almost like talking back to this voice. There's actually moments in the game where she's talking back. And then sometimes she even talks like to the player. Like she's looking into the camera, almost as she's talking to you as the player, as another voice in her head. As she's shouting back at this demonic voice and she's saying other things, you know, you feel like you're a part of it. You know, you're a part of what she's suffering. You're you're there controlling her and you're one of those voices telling her, you know, we, let's keep going. And then that demonic voice, when it says you, it's almost you're with that voice telling her you have to do this. Or even the voice is saying you as in the player. When she says you, you know, Senua, you, and since you're playing as Senua, you almost feel partly responsible for what has happened because of the word you coming up again and again and again. And you feel like you're at fault for something. You're at fault for her suffering, Senua suffering. You're at fault for the suffering of her lover, you know, whatever it is. It starts to feel a little more personal because of that simple word you that pops up time and time again. And now, this one moment in the game I really want to bring up that kind of like culminates everything this game is trying to do in just one little setting is an area called the Sea of Corpses. So I'm just going to give you a, a quick overview of what happens in this moment of the game to give you an idea of the full experience what this game is trying to throw at you. So you, you're transported to this place called the Sea of Corpses, and Senua's wading through a river of blood. And along both sides of this river, to your left and to your right are the souls and bodies of the damned piled up high. And you can hear their cries, screaming, and stuff like that all at the same time as you're walking through this horrid place. And then shortly after you get there, that demonic voice I mentioned starts talking and starts giving a lot more information to you as a player and to Senua, you know, about why she's there and how she should be to blame for everything and she needs to give up on this pointless mission that she'll never get her lover Dillian back it's pointless give up now it's better than facing the truth at the end so on and so forth he's just digging this into you and her mind constantly and as he's talking music starts playing it's very mellow at first but then it starts to build up and when the music hits this peak and he really gets into you about how much it's her fault and everything this onslaught of enemies to start appearing one after another come charging at you from far away and you're almost filled with this rush of energy of like i need to fight through this and i need to survive to get to the end but then you have everything going on you have these enemies come at you do i focus on these enemies charging towards me do I try and ignore what this voice is saying to me? What about these screams of the damned around me? I have to try and block those out. There's just so much that's getting thrown at you. There's a sensory overload of just visuals and audio thrown at you. And then everything on top of that, while you're fighting these enemies behind them, you see people screaming and reaching out to you to be saved. There's just so much that's thrown at you at once. It's harrowing. And like I said, the game's an experience. I'm not berating this game at all. I think it's an amazing game that... Really, it should be played by a lot of people. And again, I don't know if this is exactly what people with psychosis go through with these voices and the suffering and everything like that, but it really makes you think what video games can do. So Ninja Theory is also the guys behind Devil May Cry, 
you know, Odyssey, Journey to the West, and a couple other games. So they know how to do a hack and slash. They know how to make games. And what they did for this is they kind of pulled the curtain back. And instead of just making this hack and slash beat em up game, they developed this world for you to really get invested in by hearing these voices, by seeing what Senua sees, and all these different things. And I have to admit, I'm playing through the game again now. I've only beaten it once, and it took me some time to beat because I was just in shock constantly of what the game was doing to both me as a player and Senua as a character. It kept me invested because I want to see I want to see it through to the end. Like, yeah, I'm like horrified right now with the things I'm seeing and the stuff I'm hearing with these voices. But that makes me want to continue playing. So I'm like, I've already gone through part of the suffering with Senua. I want to see it to the end. I want to be with her and get to the end and rescue Dillian and have that happy ending. It makes you want that happy ending more than more so than ever. Like, there are plenty of games that, yeah, you want to beat the evilness at the end and be victorious and happy-go-lucky, yada, yada, yada. But with Hellblade, you know, there was no great evil to face. It was just you, Senua. And your inner demons and going through to just rescue your lover. And you, then you're like, I've gone through all this. I'm seeing all these cutscenes. I just want him back. It it makes you want to get there. Where Child of Light gives you the storybook and you just want to read the book and see how the book ends and see this kid get back to mom and dad. That's heartwarming. And then in Hellblade, it's not heartwarming. It's more, if I'm going to go through this, I'm going to get to the end. And they rope you in with that so well. And then the last game I brought up, which kind of takes a note from Hellblade with combat being very streamlined and very simple, but goes about their narrative in a totally different way, is the game Fury. So Fury is combat-focused, where the other two games had combat sprinkled in with the narrative to keep the player going. Fury is just pure combat. So you're playing the main character who goes by one or two names, depending on who's talking, either writer or sometimes called stranger. I'm just going to reference him as writer to make life easy. So writer is a prisoner and looking to break out of prison. That's it. The prison is consisted of multiple what they call prison planets, and there is a guardian or jailer on each planet. The jailer, and this is the actual thing from the Steam um, store page, the little motto is, the jailer's the key, kill him and you'll be free. And that's the premise of the game. You fight one guardian after the next to get your freedom. That's all. So what they do to make this work is first making bosses that are incredibly difficult. So since you're just fighting one-on-one with these people, they want to make the bosses memorable. So... If you're not fighting a boss, there's this little section in the game. Like, you'll walk from one boss fight to the next, from one arena to the next. And during that time, you're able to relax, kind of take a deep breath and everything. Because the bosses, since that's the focus of the game, are just not terrible in the sense of bad. But, like, terrible in the sense of you have to put your all into this. Be focused on the fight before you, okay? And learn. These bosses have patterns. What is their pattern? I need to learn their pattern, and I need to find a counter to it. Because like Hellblade, you're given just a simple setup of stuff at the beginning. You're given a sword, a gun, and you're able to dodge. And that's it. You have to use those three things along with the parry ability 
to get through each and every boss. There's no leveling up like in Child of Light. There's no additional abilities you get like Hellblade gives you that one ability partway through the game. Nope, Fury is just, here's it. Here's your arsenal. Find a way to adapt it to each and every boss. If you die, well, start the boss fight over. Learn from your mistakes. Learn that pattern. Try again. Keep going. Now, where does world building and narrative come into this? When you're just fighting bosses, how the heck do we develop a story around that? Well, what they did, what the game bakers did was genius. The story mostly unfolds during those fights. So, like I said before, between each fight, you just have this small section where you're just kind of walking from one section to the next. All right? During that time, there's another prisoner with you who gives you kind of a little bit of a backstory of each of the jailers. So you kind of get an idea of who this jailer is you're about to fight. You're also walking through their little prison planet, their little satellite area in space. And you kind of get to see like the environment. Like, okay, this kind of gives me an idea of who this person is based on kind of what I see around me. All right, so I get a little backstory of the boss itself. Now when you reach the boss, since it's just you and the boss... The boss has a lot of dialogue. There's an intro cutscene that kind of gives you a little more premise of who this person is, why they're there, and like each of them has a motivation for being a jailer and spending their life there to keep you locked up, and you kind of get an idea of that from the intro cutscene. And then during the fight, there's some amazing music for each of them. Like they all, the game bakers reached out to various indie artists that are kind of like in the underground or into kind of the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Ah, it's escaping me right now, okay? Oh, dubstep, there we go. Kind of like dubstep-ish type electric music. Each of those bosses have that, and it adds to the feeling of the boss. The most important part, though, that they have is their dialogue. So when you find this boss, they say various things during the fight. They say it based on, like, when you're attacking, they'll say things in reaction to your attack patterns. They'll also say various things, like, when you lose a life, so during the game you have three lives. If you don't have all three lives, you restart the boss. But if you lose only one life, you restart the phase you're on for the boss. So when you lose a life, the boss will start to do something to kind of like show they're trying to lock you up again. And they'll say something. And what's cool is that each life is different. So depending on how many times you've died in that phase will depend on what the boss says when going to lock you up again. And then also, as you go further in the fight and they get more desperate to defeat you... They say more things about, you know, I'm trying to stop you or I can't give up, you know, depending on who it is, they say different things. So you're learning all about this world and about who Ryder is based on these jailers because it, it gives you this weird feeling of the anti-hero. Like, you don't know who Ryder is. All you know is you're controlling him and you're trying to break out of prison. Why is he in prison in the first place? Well, I don't know. Ryder knows, the main character knows, but he's mute. He doesn't talk. So you're trying to find out why he's locked up based on what these jailers are saying. So that brings into question also, I'm killing these people so I can be free. But are they the bad guys? Like, am I killing these jailers? You know, I'm killing them out of necessity. But is this the right thing to do? Like, why is Ryder locked up? Am I killing these people because they're inherently evil? You don't know until you go further through the game, learn more about these bosses, learn more about Ryder yourself through the dialogue with them. It all, it just, it's slowly kind of fed to you throughout the game, which is just, it it, it works. 
it works because you stay for the game for the story, but in the moment you're so focused on this challenging bullet hell hack and slash combat that you're caught up in just, I got to kill this person so I can survive. And then later you're thinking like, why? Like, okay, why did I fight them? What were they doing here? Things like that. You're constantly thinking about it. And at least for senses of like motivation to keep you invested in the game, what's great is that each boss is different. Yes, they're all jailers. They're all people who have this motivation to keep you locked up. But additional motivations vary. So, like, there's this one boss that during the fight, he'll constantly go in with dialogue of, oh, I want to kill you, you're the reason why I'm suffering, etc., 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 and he's really violent and brutal in-game. And while I was playing through on the hard difficulty, the Furrier difficulty, this guy was giving me a tough time, and I pretty much was almost cursing this guy out. I'm like, God, I'm like, fuck, damn it, he killed me again, I'm just pissed off with myself, and I'm really mad, I'm like, fuck it, I'm going to go again to fight this guy, I don't care, you know, I'm going beat this guy just because he's driving me nuts. And then there's this other boss that you encounter and he's very calm during the fight. And even during the fight, like when he beats you, when every other boss is trying to like drag you away to lock you up or kill you or whatever, this guy actually just lets you be. And he encourages you. He says, come on, get back up, keep fighting. You can do better than this. I want you to do better practice more like he's giving you so many words of encouragement and then every time I you know I failed and I died during this fight I'm sitting there I'm like I was totally calm I was a little anxious because I wanted to beat this guy I wanted to beat the game but I was like he's right let me just practice a little more let me give it another go I'll learn a little bit more about this fight you know and it keeps you motivated because he the guy you're trying to kill is motivating you so when it comes to this world building and just humans in general, just being a human being in general, that motivation that people give you goes a long way. The way people act around you goes afar and it really makes you develop this understanding of the world. Especially when you're young, it helps shape what you think of the world as people interact around you. So Fury with their boss fights kind of takes that. You know, take that simple psychological principle of you're developing your thoughts of the world around you based on how people interact with you. So when you get to the end of Fury, you're, you think about everything that just happened because all these people are interacting with you differently and have different motivations and different feelings. You start to think about what is this world and, you know, why am, why am I here? Why is Ryder here? There's nothing else going on. I'm not fetching parts of the story elsewhere. I'm not exploring anything. I'm not leveling up. There's no random goons I'm hacking through to get to the end of the game. I'm just fighting these people who are on par with me. They're as strong as me, as skillful as me, you know, everything. It gets you there. It makes you think, why am I playing this game? And what does Ryder have to do with this world? Why is he locked up? And all that kind of stuff. So with these three games, each game in the end is making you think something different. Like Child of Light is just making you feel pleasant and happy about this story that you just experienced. Hellblade is making you wonder what it means to suffer and go through turmoil and have a, you know, this just really disturbing experience. And Fury is making you think, you know, who am I? What do I fight for? What is the world to me? You know, you, you think all these different things because each game has a very simple premise that we can understand. Each of them has just a very simple story. Child of Light, you're a young girl trying to get back home. Hellblade, 
you're going through hell to rescue a lover. Like, you're going through the turmoil of losing someone you care about. Fury, you're fighting for your freedom. You're fighting for something you believe in. All of us maybe not experience it firsthand, but we know what it's like for someone to go through that. So the player stays engaged because we get this little helping of the story in the very beginning of the game, but not an information overload, just a little bit dangled in front of us to kind of hook us in. And then we play the game more to find out more about this story that this standalone game is giving us. The gameplay is obviously a bonus. It keeps us interacting with the world and all that good stuff. But in the reality, in the end, it's all about what it's trying to tell us and what's trying to make us think. So what's great about these standalone games that a game universe will never be able to tackle is that small helping. Yes, gaming universes, like I spoke about last week, are amazing and they're great and they're expansive. There's so much we can learn about them, but we're learning more about that universe with these standalone games, because they're just one-off, we're learning more about the character in them. Or we're learning more about ourselves because the game almost is a reflection of real life because they're just trying to do this one little thing. They're trying to show you this one little game, and that's it. So on that note, I do recommend all three of these games. They are all amazing. All of them can be purchased on Steam, and all of them have a home on Xbox One and PlayStation 4. Child of Light has a home on the Wii U. Hellblade is not available for Nintendo, sadly. And Fear you can get on the Nintendo Switch if you own it. And all of them are in the range of like $20 to $30. They're fairly cheap. So I recommend picking them up, seeing what they have to offer for you as a gamer and a person. And just kind of get a feel for the story that they've created. So, once again, I thank you for joining us on The Gaming Couch. Now, we've spoken a lot about the world's build around these games, but we have yet to really talk about the individual pieces, the characters, the mechanics, like, you know, the working bits themselves. So that is something that we will end up tackling next week. So, all of you, thank you for joining me on The Couch, and I hope you enjoy your week. Take care. Join us every Sunday at 8 p.m. for a new episode of Gaming Couch. Be sure to follow us on Facebook at Gaming Couch for news and updates. And if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, shoot us an email at gamingcouchpodcast at gmail.com.